Today on Sagittarian Matters, post-election despair, comics, and more with the Honorable Alison Bechdel. Stay tuned. Hello, how are you? Hello from the end times. I can't believe our country tried to bring fascism into American lives and xenophobia and racism apparently haven't died like I wanted. Hello. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Alison Bechtel. Though I do regret our interview was scheduled for two days after the election, there is nobody I would rather spend the apocalypse with. Allison is the author of the book Fun Home, Are You My Mother?, Dykes to Watch Out For, and she is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Allison has always been a generous, intelligent, kind, and funny person in my sphere, and I'm so happy that I get to share this conversation with you. Take care of yourselves out there this week. Always send me your advice questions, and I'll see you again next Friday. Alison Bechtel, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you, Nicole. Very glad to be here on this grim day. So, okay, when we scheduled this... I don't know what you thought was going to happen, but I didn't think that we were going to be in an apocalyptic society. No, I hadn't anticipated that either. But, uh, and so what? Like, the election happened and I was like, oh no, is Allison going to cancel because she has to like go like jump off a bridge like everyone else, you know, like everybody else, you know, my friend Alex like, oh, hold on, let me like take the gun out of my mouth. Okay. Now I can type with two hands. You know, like everybody was a little... I did have this impulse in my car yesterday to just veer off a cliff. Oh, my God. But I didn't do it. <laughs> so I thought I was like, oh, it's too, it's, everyone's going to be too low. What are we going to do? And then I realized, you know, I had this general call for advice questions. And people are kind of have some advice questions specifically for you and I, specifically in light of the events. So I feel like maybe we could be of service. So I, it's good. I hope so, Nicole. I just feel so, um, you know, I'm in shock. I mean, I feel sort of, that feels a little ridiculous because I must say, even though I'm in shock, I'm not completely surprised. I'm not surprised, but I'm still stunned, if that's possible. I was surprised. And I must be naive. And an optimist. Well, uh, you know, we we weren't getting accurate information, obviously, about what was going on. So it was easy to think it was going to turn out okay. Um, I don't know why the polls all said Hillary was going to win. Do you know? You figured this out? There's so much information. I can just keep reading stuff and reading stuff, and there's so many people blaming so many different causes and it's very hard to sort anything out at this stage. I don't know. I mean, somebody on Twitter said that some right wing, they were like, you know, if you want to be scared, look at these right wing Reddit kind of threads where people talk about um, like not saying they're going to vote for Trump and then voting for Trump as a, like as a tactic. But I just, I guess I don't understand what's the point of that. Was that a tactic or was that just people not wanting to admit to anyone that they're voting for Trump and then doing it in the privacy of the voting booth? I don't know. I mean, it, it seemed like I couldn't I couldn't go down that Reddit thread, but it seemed like a tactic. But it's a confusing one. And then I also think maybe maybe Russia rigged the um, rigged the voting system. Uh, I can't I can't go there. I can't go there. <laughs> 
No, I think what happened was just a real reflection of tremendous economic discontent. Mm. People are just really uh, not feeling heard or listened to, and no one was paying attention to them, especially the media Definitely. and the pollsters. Hi, my name is Colleen, and this is my wife, Kristen. Hi. Um, we have a question for both Nicole and Allison. Um, we are extremely hurt by this um, election, and we're both driven to make art out of it. And I guess both of you, um, with your experience, and especially Allison, because she's dealt with a lot of um, political, you know, with um, Dexter Lodge's work, cartooning, how do you boil a really complicated feeling or emotion into a one-page comic? Um, because we really want to do that. We both do. I just want to say thank you on behalf of the both of us for this podcast before this election, and especially now. It's been a real solace and a sanctuary to tune everything out and just listen to your podcast and have a laugh and feel empowered for that 45 minutes or so, and, and, and it carries forward. Thank you. Very inspiring. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, one-page cartoons are much harder than 10-page cartoons, so you have to work a lot more at those, for one thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm feeling like uh, kind of relieved that I'm not still doing my comic strip. I don't know how I would approach this well i mean what would mo be doing right now building a bunker uh i'm not sure learning to shoot at a target range mo might be kind of a little hyper reactive um but honestly i'm not i'm glad not to have to think about that sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's okay because it's um i you know i just feel like it it would certainly be difficult to do anything funny right now i mean it's not this is not funny um you know and over the years i you know i've joked and written stuff even in in my comic strip about I don't know, during the, during the Bush administration, people worrying about getting rounded up and put in detention camps. You can't, you can't make those jokes anymore. That's not, uh, I mean, I'm kind of still, I'm kind of just started, started in on my, uh, (laughs) telling people I'll see them at the gas chamber kind of jokes. Well, I guess we can do that. (laughs) We can't, but you know, I, as I was watching Twitter the night of the, the returns were coming in, did you see, I felt so bad because Tom Tomorrow, the guy who does This Modern World, that brilliant political comic strip, um, said, you know, how can I, I'm going to quit. I can't do this anymore. Not only is he not does, not getting enough support from the newspapers that carry him, but reality has outstripped any anything he has been writing about. You know, he's been writing really beautifully about Trump and now this. Um, I'm I'm sorry. I wish I could be more coherent about all this. Let's go back to the question. How the question do question you... at hand is how do you distill? Well, this person wants to know how do you distill or um, bring an emotional experience onto the page. I mean, well, my my personal way of doing that is probably not everyone's way, and probably not the best way. But I like to take in a lot of information as well as consult my own feelings because I don't don't trust my own feelings I guess well I I I mean I'm just a person who is very self-doubting all the time it's very hard for me to trust that what I think or feel at any given moment is okay um so I like to look at the world look at what what other people are thinking and feeling and saying and that helps me to sort out what I'm feeling so that might not be the best way for other people to make a cartoon, but that's how I always do it. I I think. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I mean, I think that those are the things that make me want to do a cartoon the most. 
And I don't think they should limit themselves to one page. That's too big of a confine. I think they should just give themselves a lot of space and maybe even go get a nice blank, a nice blank sketchbook that's a size that makes them feel free and just draw the comic as long as they need to draw it and then they can set it to rest and come back to it a week later and edit it to be something a little bit more coherent. Yeah, yeah, maybe distill it a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, making a cartoon is a really good thing to do right now, trying to communicate with other people about what you're feeling and thinking. Um, I mean, I, so the night of the election, I, I was still kind of like pushing it down, pushing down my feelings, as is my custom. And I was like, I just want to hit the ground running harder because time is when time feels more limited now. All right, it gave me a little a little wake up or shake up call. I hope that that is what happens. You know that. Um, I guess I have a a fantasy that this will galvanize us um, into some kind of more organized opposition. You know. Uh, conventional politics obviously is not working for anyone. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I hope that we can rise to that occasion. Me too. I have a question for you. I have a lot of questions for you. But wait, wait, how did this, does this feel different than, because you were doing Dykes to Watch Out for during Reagan. Yes. It feels so different than that. It feels so different. Reagan was like a stroll in the park compared with this. Even the Bush administration, which was quite terrifying to me, is like nothing compared to this. I feel like a whole different kind of um, grief than I've ever felt in my life for a person, for a pet, for, for any kind of, you know, tragedy that's happened. It's different from 9-11. I really feel like, in some way, I feel like the only way I can put it, and this isn't accurate, but the way I keep putting it is I feel like the world died. I know that's a little overblown, and the world hasn't died. Obviously, the world is still churning along like it always does, but um, I feel like some really exponentially different thing has been has happened. Well, I think, is it in part because your faith in people or your fellow Americans has been taken down? Um, here's what I feel about my fellow Americans. I feel like all these people who have not been getting listened to, who have not get, been taken seriously, I feel like they've done something. This happens to me. Uh, sometimes when I'm in therapy, I, I have been going to therapy for like my entire adult life. And sometimes um, my therapist will say this interesting thing when I'm, when I'm maybe when something difficult is going on, when we're at some sort of impasse in what we're talking about, she will say to me, wow, you know, I think I just had this feeling of what it must be like to be you, or what, what, what your emotions are around this thing. And I feel like that's what's happened, this kind of weird psychoanalytic transference. The, the unhappy people in this country have finally made us feel their pain. Now I know that the powerlessness, the sense of powerlessness I'm feeling right now, and um, and fear um, is is what they have been feeling. You know, it, it's been easy to just write off. Even you know, I've got family members who voted for Trump, and I've heard heard them talking about fear of terrorism and stuff and i just haven't taken it seriously it's like come on you know um but those fears were real to them and now and now i'm i they've gotten me to feel that same kind of fear although my fear i feel is very different my fear unlike theirs is much more um realistic yeah my fear of what donald trump is going to do to the world yeah uh, if it if it pleases the court, I just before we talked, I recorded a short bit with my friend Brandy, who is a witch, for this week's episode. Before yours, that there's like a little bit of 
I don't know, just talking about how to heal or deal or be in our bodies during this time. And she, I mean, it just, she was like, you just got to take it back for a second and just go one, one foot in front of the other and take care of yourself and see what you can do directly in front of you. Because I feel like when I I think about that, when I think about like Trump as presidency, Trump as whatever, you know, future tripping over the next four years, it's too much, even for my physical body or brain to process at one time. Yeah. Um, I just happened to have my my weekly Qigong class last night, and it was really helpful. Man. What happens just there? For, what? What is that? What happens there? Um, Qigong is, uh, I don't even know. It's like all these complicated ancient Chinese exercises that you do with energy and breathing. But um, it was really helpful to just go and breathe for an hour with a bunch of other people in a synchronized way. Um, I, you know, for a few minutes, I actually wasn't feeling paralyzed with existential dread. So breathing is important. I gotta remember to breathe. I just, I feel so grateful that you're here and alive and that you've done all the work you've done and that we still get to talk. (laughs) You know, like, I'm like, oh, it's the end of the world. I'm like, but I get to sit here and talk to Allison. I'm very glad you're alive, too. I'm grateful for your work, and I'm glad to be sitting here talking with you. Thanks. Do you find yourself um, sort of whimpering from time to time? I find myself heaving these great sighs as if I've stopped breathing, and all of a sudden I'm (sighs) sighing. I don't know, but I keep spontaneously crying different places. Um, Yeah, that's good. Let it out. Like, I was choosing lotion at the grocery store, and I was like, oh, I want to get the one with no palm oil so I don't hurt orangutans. And then I was like, what does it matter? What does it matter? What does it matter? The polar bears, the orangutans. It's it's unfathomable. It's a little unfathomable, but again, one second at a time. I don't find myself whimpering. But I did get an astrology appointment. I talked to a, a psychic before I came to LA. And she said, she was like, your chest is really tight. Like, you need to breathe more. Like, she's like, what's up with your lungs? She's like, do you smoke? Do you? And I was like, no, I don't smoke. And she said that my lungs seem really tight, so I need to breathe more and think about breathing more. So when I'm aware of that, I realize, like, my chest does get tight. And then I just, like, shallow breathe all the time. Yeah. Like, I don't, do you breathe while you're drawing? Like, I, like if I'm doing a long line that I don't want to mess up, I realize I hold my breath. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, all those little things you do to control the line. I I, I, I take deep breaths. I can hear myself. Like, I'm, <laughs> like you could re- do a recording of it. And I also use my core muscles in this really interesting way. If it's a, especially if I'm trying to, like, paint a panel outline, like a straight, a long straight line. Yeah. It's very physical. It's like an all-over-body experience. It is physical. Um, all right, I'm going to ask you about that. I'm veering away from the topics of the day to ask Well, you. I think we should just free associate. I mean, we, we, can, we can follow your list. It's fine, but I don't think we should worry about sticking to anything. Okay. Well, I want to know how your process has changed over time, drawing-wise. Because I'm always using new tools, and I'm always using new processes. I'm always drawing in new ways. And what, like with new I don't know, like, has it gotten gotten easier? Like, because I know, like, when you were in Italy doing your residency, you were drawing on, like, giant pieces of paper. Yeah. And I want, you know, and I know, I guess I think about people, like, I think about, like, Dan Klaus or Adrian Tomine or like not not Joe Sacco, which I don't understand how, but like people that like maybe when they started things were way more controlled and tiny and like overwrought and it seemed like their whole bodies were hunched and stressed into this page. But it seemed like, you know, when I've seen different times or places that you've drawn, you kind of give you have given yourself more space. Well, I I did, it's true for that residency, but I haven't kept it up in any way. And I, I had been had a practice earlier than that of 
just doing a daily giant drawing, a big like four by eight foot drawing on craft paper. I did that for like a year or two, maybe, well, God, like 10 years ago now, like a, a long time ago. And I haven't kept it up just because I don't have space anymore. Uh, but I liked very much doing those super big things. You know, the horrible, the sad fact of my life, Nicole, is that I don't draw every day. I don't draw. I go weeks, months without drawing. How does it feel? It feels terrible. It feels terrible. I don't like it. Is it because you don't have time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in, to some extent, some, some of it can be blamed on that. But the other part is um, just my process. I, I'm, I'm working on a book right now, which I've been working on for years. Uh, and it's all kind of in my head. It's all on the computer screen. So I, that's one big way that my process has changed over the 30 years that I've been doing this, longer than 30 years. 35 years. Is that possible? Kind of. Yeah. Because I've been doing it for 20 years. What? Which sounds crazy. That's crazy. I've been putting out zines and comics for more like 20, 22 years. Like I put out my first zine when I was 14 years old. I thought you were just like, I just think of you as this child, but obviously you're not. I can't keep up. You can't keep up. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, and I mostly can't keep up with the fact that I'm getting old. Anyhow, I've been doing this for a super long time, all through this whole technological shift in the world and in, you know, Photoshop. I never, you know, I used to draw stuff all by hand. Um, I mean, I still draw stuff by hand, but I, I never looked at a screen or a pixel. It was all analog. Um, I try to go out of my way to stay away from the computer because it makes me feel dead. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it, no, it doesn't make me feel dead. I really like the computer, even though I feel like I've come to rely way too much on it. And I, sh- I need to... I guess it does, you know... I'm complaining about how I don't draw because I'm on the computer, so... Uh, it is a bit of a problem, but I feel like I, I can't think clearly unless I'm on the computer. I need to have all the, like I, I do most of my writing, I do all my writing in Illustrator where I can move my text around on the screen and, um, you know, that's just how my thought process works now. I couldn't do that on a piece of paper. I wouldn't have that fluidity. I think that's so, so interesting, the Illustrator thing. Like I like the idea that you write that way. And it also seems like maybe it helps your hands a little bit. Well, it's true. I, I mean, I haven't had any uh, wrist trouble for a long time because I'm because I'm not drawing. <laughs> well, so I draw all the time. Not necessarily. I don't know. I just draw all the time, and so now I have the opposite problem where I have like a mountain of things that need sorting through. Or I don't know. Like I go to like this like group therapy kind of situation often, like generally weekly, and I'll take notes there. But then I'll always draw there. Like I, you know, when I was at the Center for Cartoon Studies, they had a pro doodling policy. So people would come to talk, which you may have noticed. And like everyone's heads were down because they were doodling while the people were talking. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of just incorporated that into my practice of any time I'm at a meeting. I mean, unless I'm happy to make eye contact and speaking at the meeting. But if I'm in the back of a thing or I don't have to be showing that I'm paying attention the whole time, like doodling or... Um, like I'll draw different animals so that I can attribute the therapeutic quotes to the animals um, to keep the people anonymous or I'll draw the person in front of me like if they have a weird hairstyle but so I'm, I'm constantly drawing even if I'm not like sitting at my desk composing a comic that's really great I wish I could do that more um, you might say why don't you just do it and I would say I don't know does it feel like more pressure now? Yeah, that's part of it too. Um, and also I don't have the regular deadline of a comic strip that I used to have, which meant I had to always be drawing. Um, Do you keep a diary? 
On the computer, does that count? Yeah. My girlfriend is always telling me it would be better if I wrote it by hand. But I don't even write by hand anymore. This is all very sad. I, um, well, I asked you that because I wonder, you know, because I've always kept a diary my whole life. I've always kept a visual diary my whole life. But at a certain point, after I had put out like hundreds of pages of diary comics, I realized I couldn't trust myself to not publish whatever I was writing down. And I <laughs> couldn't, does that make sense? Like, so like I, I weirdly started editing my own diaries because I knew oh. that there would be some moment in the future where it didn't mean as much to me and I would just flip it over and photocopy it and make it public wow. record. And so I started having a weird like mirror of my own process. Huh. So are you saying that you've stopped keeping a diary because you don't want to expose that stuff? I think unless, unless I absolutely have to, unless I'm having a feeling of just like, I have to get this feeling out. I need to like get this feeling out and put it on my external hard drive, which is my journal. Um, mm -hmm. Unless I have that, I don't, I don't always keep a diary anymore. Or if I do, I'm very aware that it could be published. I, that's probably, well, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. I don't know either. But like, I guess I've, I've say, I guess I've gotten more and more self-conscious about anything I put on paper. So like, if I ever date somebody and I want to draw about them, I've gotten, I will start anonymizing people to the point where like, I make them like an, an unrecognizable animal with a completely uh -huh. fake name because I uh -huh. can't bear to expose the people around me anymore than I already have. Yeah, well, that's that's a very good policy. Yeah, but I wondered if that had happened to you in your own private practice. No, I take I keep a very detailed diary. It's almost like running notes on my life. Um, and as I get older and older, you know, decades upon decades of doing that, it's a it's a vast number of pages. And since I, what I what I often, you know, I'm a memoirist. I think I'm a memoirist. I guess I guess that's what I've become. That's my material, and it's like too much. It's too much material even for me to manage, even when it's searchable. It's like I find myself spending days just sort of wading through these old notes I've made, trying to sort out what I did and why it happened then, and. Uh, if I didn't have all those notes, I wouldn't be able to waste my time like that. It's not necessarily wasting time. Maybe I'm gleaning something from it, but um, it does sometimes feel terribly solipsistic, nauseatingly so. Has it helped you, though? Like, I don't know. Like, I, all my friends that talk about burning their journals, I'm horrified. Oh, my God. You should be horrified. Right? It feels like they're – I feel like that's, like, like – destroying one of your own horcruxes. Like, it's just, I don't like the idea of like deleting these. Cause, cause I don't know, maybe like, maybe you do this too, but to me, sometimes that's how I have a memory is because I, yeah, like my memory yeah. will be of a drawing that I did or, right. or I'll be like, Oh, I know this happened because I wrote about it. But if you just, if I had never written about it, I would never remember that moment. So yes, I think that their history, I think almost in a way, once we write stuff down, it, I think I believe that it's not really even legitimately yours anymore. It's, it's part of the, the human record, you know? You shouldn't have the power to destroy it. No, I, it makes me so uncomfortable when people talk about burning their journals, getting rid of, throwing away their journals. Um, one of my friends, I just had him send them to me. He just sent me. Oh, that's good. Like, so now I have someone else, now on top of my own hoard. I have somebody else's comic diaries of just his life. Wow, you could start a little storage business and make some money on the side. Like, and dear artists, please, when you're clutter cleansing, please do not burn your work. Give it to me. I'll start an archive and then... Yeah, you could even do like a little burning ritual with them of some other little proxy piece of paper so they feel like they've cleansed themselves of it. Like I'll make like cardboard versions of something that looks like their diary. Yeah. I'd be like, isn't that great? <laughs> isn't that great? You don't have to have that emotional baggage anymore. You just have this big fire. 
Just an effigy. Oh, now I'm thinking of all those effigies of Trump people were burning at the demonstrations. Well, that's a that's an interesting segue because our other advice question is. Hey, Nicole, longtime listener, first time caller. I'm really interested in toppling the patriarchy. Do you have any advice on where to start? Thanks. I have some advice. Yes, I'm going to plug in my computer. Please speak at will. Okay, my advice is to we got to go back to this this general principle of feminism that everyone seems to be forgetting which is that all these different kinds of oppression are linked yes and and among them is is class oppression i think honestly i think i mean i know it gets difficult when we start trying to rank things but i think the real problem right now is a, is one of class and that the the more subsidiary things which are still terribly destructive and problematic like racism and misogyny are are powerful but they're they're secondary to um what's going economically in the world i was a little uh, so worried. oh go ahead i'm sorry no you go ahead i was gonna say i was a little worried after this election that about classism rising up because it is the people on the coast being like look at all those dumb yeah all those exactly dumb, poor white people Exactly. You know, I I come from the place where those people live. I was this summer I was back there going to this county fair uh which was all white people, all Trump signs, and I felt like don't you know <laughs> the people in New York whose news shows I'm watching and whose podcasts I'm listening to have never been here. They don't understand how deep this goes, how how vast this swath of of people with, you know, who they don't have uh, meaningful work. They don't have money. They're they, they're wretched. These people look miserable and wretched, and they're angry. And there's a lot of them, and it's we don't want to face it because it's uncomfortable. And scary, and I felt scared, you know, being this big dyke at the Grange Fair. Uh, I did not feel comfortable there. Um, so how do we? So if, if if classism is part of the kind of intersectional feminist landscape, you're saying we topple the patriarchy by we we topple it by linking these different things by seeing the common roots of all these things uh, and who is benefiting from them. Uh, I'm not not really an activist. I don't know how to talk about this stuff fluently, but I know that if we were reaching, if we were forming alliances with people in these other groups, we were talking to the white working class people in central Pennsylvania somehow. I don't know how you would do this. Uh, white people dealing with their fucking racism, you know? Like, we've got to get together with these other groups, the people who are different than you. Uh, And no, nobody wants to really do that. It's uncomfortable. The Democratic Party has has stopped doing that. You know, I feel like it's become very much a party of. I mean, they say some things. They seem to be anti-racist, but I feel like they're they're just really not going far enough and haven't gone far enough. Yeah. Um. What do I think people can do? Recognize that. Recognize all the different the different forms of oppression, and like you said, who's benefiting from them? The root of these things. Having empathy for different people, like working with working with senior citizens who all had totally different different backgrounds everywhere, but the thing they had in common is they all got old at the same time and were mm-hmm. economically disadvantaged at the same time. I mean, I don't know. It was huge, and it created a bond between you know them and a gay person. And me and that that is 
beautiful and brilliant and important work. I'm so glad that you're doing that, that you have done that. I feel like here I'm going to try and volunteer with LGBT senior citizens, which will be exciting. Uh, I'm a little worried, actually, because I'm so used to talking to poor, dementia-laden senior citizens that I think it's going to be a very different experience. Um, But anyway, but I I don't know. I just think, like, it doesn't seem like much at the time, but if if all you can focus on is your little tiny patch of the world and what you can do there, just start there. I mean, I've even, yes. it just sounds like nothing, but I just have even started being nicer to my neighbors. You know, like I yes. generally will walk down the street and be like, I'm not smiling at you, man. I'm not smiling <laughs> at you, man. I was like, it has nothing to do with your race or your age or it's because you're a man. But now I'm just like walking the street. I'm like, I'm going to be nice to my fucking neighbor who's sitting in his yard. You know, that that is really very important Holly, my girlfriend Holly, that's one of her main forms of activism is smiling at people. And she has this beautiful, luminous smile. And like we were, you know, we're at the Grange Fair in Pennsylvania with all the Trump signs, or we're driving across the back side of Maine, which is also like lined with Trump signs. And at this scary gas station with these scary white guys, she just smiled at them. And it was, it just, it really transformed something. I mean, it's I can't do that. I'm not a smiler. I can't. I can't smile. But I'll. I'll try and do other things. I can't even remember what it looks like when you smile. <laughs> I know. I can't either. What happens? Like if you have to. Oh, I guess I do. I guess I do. <laughs> you have to pose for a picture. <laughs> like. <laughs> um. I guess it's just like, what do you have available to you, and then do that. You know. So like, I have a platform, and so I'm willing to use my platform for whatever good I can. But I also am just like a neighbor or a friend or a sister or a volunteer. And so those are the things I can also do. Yeah. The small, what's the thing that you're good at and then just do it. Yeah. So even sure. I'm sure you're a very good neighbor. I, you know, I I wish you were my neighbor. I wish I was your neighbor too. Well, let me know if they, let me know if any of your neighbors, um, croak or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) If they croak, you need a, a new Vermonter. But neighbor, like last night, Ponyo and I went to a visual, a visual, a vigil. Um, and it was, and Ponyo was like, people were just petting the dog, you know, like people were just getting a little bit of comfort from the dog. And it's like the tiniest speck in the biggest bucket, but it was, it was a speck we had. Yeah. So we gave it. Ponyo, come here. She's here right now. She's, What's she doing? Come here. She's in her, she's stretching her neck. She's in her bed. Come here. Come here. Hey, Ponyo. Fine. Let me lay eyes on you. Come here. Allison wants to lay eyes. Let me lay eyes on you. Oh, hi. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. How are you doing? Oh, she's feeling very relaxed. The, oh. The witch. Ponyo, look at your eyes. Look at my eyes. I can oh. see. She can see you. <laughs> she, has, she was letting people pet her. She was, you know, she has no idea what's going on. I know. It's sort of comforting. I pet my cat, and I'm very grateful that she has no idea what's going on. It's kind of, I mean, Ponyo's like the ultimate zen. She's like the ultimate, like, I don't know, uh, person that I look to when I'm like, what's a, what's a good way to be in the world? Ponyo's always wildly more popular than I am. She's much friendlier than I am. She likes literally every person. <laughs> she, she's always happy to see every person. She doesn't need mental space. Like I do, you know, mm. she's not like, please don't talk to me. Please don't make eye contact with me. I'm, I'm in my head. <laughs> I'm having mental space. What does it mean to be a lesbian cartoonist? I'm asking you this because I listened to the Fun Home musical soundtrack after leaving New York City, right? And there's, like, that part at the end of the first act, or whatever, when she's like, I became a lesbian cartoonist, and everyone's like, and then, like, the audience is like, oh, you know, and it's, like, a big thing, and it's, like, you know, a break. And then I just realized, listening to the soundtrack, I was like, I guess I don't know what that means. I guess because I'm in it. Like, I don't understand, like, what does the audience understand from that person saying that statement. And I actually even asked my therapist this. I was like, what does it mean that I'm a lesbian cartoonist? I was like, what do those words mean? So I thought I'd go to the source. 
<laughs> well, it's funny because where that line came from in the play was actually from an interview that I was that I did that Lisa Crone, the playwright, found as she was researching, you know, while she was writing the writing the play. Um, so it's not nothing that's in the book. Yeah. It's very you know outside of the book. And when I when I said it, <laughs> I I said it. Um, you know, I was I was saying succinctly what the what Fun Home the, the book is about, and it's about well, um, you know, growing up in this in the same small Pennsylvania town as my father, who was also gay, but we had these very different outcomes to our lives. He killed right. himself, and I I became a lesbian cartoonist. And to me, that's funny. There's a I mean, it's tragic. It's just this quick pivot from tragedy to comedy. Yeah. A lesbian cartoonist is a ridiculous thing in a, in a way. I mean, it's That's, it's not ridiculous. It's a it's a good thing, but it's also it's not like I became a lesbian brain surgeon, you know. But that so when I first heard that, that I also was like, oh yeah, like the same like pivot of like comedy tragedy. But then like seeing it in front of all these people, I was like, <laughs> yeah. Well, people respond to it differently. You never know where the audience is going to go with it, and. Most mostly, they seem to laugh in the way that I was laughing to myself when I initially said it. But sometimes, I think people don't know what to make of it. Like, is it serious? And if so, it's just kind of odd. But I think that uh, they take it very deeply. Well, what do you what do you, what do you feel? Do you feel like it's somehow? How is it speaking to you? I don't. Know, I was just like, it just means that I'm a documentarian of my life in this we I process things in a weird way or I metabolize trauma in this very specific way that I guess other people don't uh that's that's kind of what I took out of it because I just realized I was like is it heavier than what I originally I mean I was like what because I guess I'm also like what does it mean to be a lesbian to the rest of the world you know because to us you're like oh it means like these are my friends and this is the person I date or want to date or this or that, you know, like, it's just, like, no big deal. But to the outside, being a lesbian looks totally different. Yeah, and I guess there's, there is another layer to this whole thing, which is, why call yourself a lesbian cartoonist at all? Why not say you're a cartoonist? You know? Yeah. But for many, many years in, in my youth, you know, when I was starting out, it it never occurred to me to say I was a cartoonist. It wasn't... I, and it's hard to explain this existentially. Like, I came of age in a place where um you had to identify with your group you had to to survive and to thrive and function i lived in a lesbian world in my 20s and a function of that was to call myself a lesbian cartoonist which might sound strange to someone else i mean all my cartoons weren't about being a lesbian and uh there's nothing like essentially lesbian about the lines that I draw you know it's but it was um I don't feel that same linkage anymore I don't I you know I I don't I say I'm a cartoonist and, and don't I don't feel like I'm betraying my lesbianism by by saying that I feel like at some point it just sort of became sort of vestigial I didn't need it wasn't part of my core identity in the same way as a as a cartoonist so it's got that layer too. Like you had to, you had to embrace your lesbian identity to function. Did you, do you feel, I, I kind of, I think about your career path, like when I'm teaching comics to students, because students will always be like, you know, oh, I want to, I want to draw a graphic novel. And they just like jump out of the gate and they're like, I'm going to do this huge project. And they see people with, who have succeeded to them, you know, in making like a beautiful book that was meaningful to people. And I'm like, but what you don't, what you're not understanding is this person toiled and worked for, you know, over 20 years in comics obscurity, sort of, you know, before yeah. practicing, honing their craft, building characters, building storylines, working, working, working every day so that they had the muscles to flex to make this work. And I guess I, when I think <clears throat> about your career path, I just wonder, like, 
did it matter to you? Like, were, did you feel accepted by comics? And does that matter? Did it matter? Did you care? No, well, that was the other, I guess I, I sort of didn't quite finish my whole thought oh, about sorry. the lesbian cartoonist thing. But no, you, I just rambled off. Um, no, I was not a part of the comics world at all. I could not have been. That's what I, that's what I was trying to say. You know, the co- world of comics in the 1980s was like uh, nothing like what we have today. It was you'd go to the comics shop and it was all like X-Men and Marvel and there'd be a tiny little shelf in the back of a building. It was almost like going into uh, a gay bookstore and looking for the like porn, like a special little porn shelf. It's like it was the subset of a subset, you know. There was there was the alternative comics way in the back. There was then you could find Dan Klaus's work and American Splendor and Love and Rockets. But it was it was minute. It was just a little tiny subset. And so I wasn't part of either of those worlds. The alternative comics world was um uh no one was interested or ready to hear the kind of stories I was telling. It seemed like they were what? barely even ready to hear women's stories in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Let alone exactly. women that had no use for men. Right. 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 It was like, it was just so outside the realm of anything. And, and, and that, that was what my, my work was like for years. And I, I, I didn't have any, it wasn't like I was banging on their doors to get let in. I just went off on my own way. And instead of living in the comics world, I, I became part, my, my world became the lesbian and gay literary world, like people who were writing books. Um, those were, that was like my professional community. And only, only after Fun Home succeeded as well as it did and sort of crossed over, did I get sort of grandfathered, <laughs> grandmothered in as a, as a cartoonist and started getting respect and recognition from the comics world, which I'm grateful for, but it was, it did, it was not anything that I ever had or even thought about until 25 years after I started doing my work. Yeah. I think, I think about that a lot because I mean, you know, I, so I saw you when I was in Vermont I went to the center for cartoon studies and part of my going there was to try and heal my, heal my relationship with the male comics world. Huh. Because when I first, I mean, the first time I went to a comics show, you know, a friend dragged me in and I went to like an alternative comic show and just immediately some guy with glasses was like, you're like my dream girl. And just, I just like immediately oh was turned, turned off to the whole thing because I just <laughs> was like, I don't understand. And then, and then yeah. comics men would draw me, but they would draw me like slapping men or like yelling at them or like I have I have literally three different drawings by three different cartoonist men of me like sweating veins sticking out of my neck screaming at them calling them idiots because there was this thing where you know I just was feeling the like um maybe men that didn't do so well with women in high school growing up and having their own landscape and then Mm -hmm. being a woman who then they feel scorned by because I'm yeah they just you know, took that and ran with it. And so I just, yeah, it was like live gamer gate. It was like live gamer gate. So then I felt so, See, you're so brave. I mean, you're so brave to have gone into that world. I, I never wanted anything to do with it. I just, I guess I just realized I was like, I, I, I don't know why I care about their respect, but cause I just love it. Cause I guess I love comics so much that it just doesn't make sense. But anything I have comes from being in the queer literary community and surrounding myself with supportive queer people. And then, you know, and then there's the bridge to comics. I mean, it's different. It's different. It's on a different scale and level than Fun Home. But I feel it's it's also a thing where I had to make an alternate path. Yeah. Um, It's it's so funny. You should. Can you see yourself? You have these wings. You have one osprey wing coming out of one side of your head and an eagle wing coming out of the other side. I know. I was kind of trying to move it so it didn't look like the eagle was attacking me. (laughs) Does it look like this? I'm looking at my notes from when you talked at Dartmouth in 2014. I really, really liked, and I think I emailed you this, when you said that you liked being an outsider. Yeah. And that, yeah, I feel like that's been a great gift to me. And that being a lesbian gave you some objectivity that you wouldn't have had if you were in normal society. Yeah. And maybe somehow we can tie this back into the whole 
Trump debacle. But um, well, I guess the, the first place my mind went is that I think part of this crazy white backlash is based on the perception that all the others are getting attention and they're not, you know? Mm-hmm. And we have, we have gotten attention. It's amazing to me the strides LGBT people have had over the past three decades. It's astonishing. Um, race stuff feels more difficult, has not had the same kind of progress, but we had a black president, you know? Uh, like there's been amazing strides. And it sucks that people see that as somehow taking something away from them, but that's where they go with it. And that's where they go with it when a demagogue tells them to go there with it. Uh, so how do we, sorry, I'm not, I'm not good, good at um, speaking off the cuff, as you might have noticed. <laughs> I wish I could do that. I wish I could hang on to a thought and really follow it. But I'm trying to say something about the value of otherness. Um, so for me, I mean, it, this seems like so obvious, it's hardly worth expending the air to say it, but um, being on the out, being on, for me, when I got politicized, when I kind of woke up out of my white middle-class haze as a young person was when I realized I was a lesbian. And all of a sudden I was not okay. I was not part of that world I had I thought I was a part of. And being pushed to the outside enabled me to see that place and to see all the power structures that held it in place. Um, and that was an amazing revelation. And I think when you're in those privileged spaces, you have no idea what's holding them up. You think they're just magically levitating um so that was a real gift to see how um you know exclusion and oppression work um no i guess i don't know where that's going to go next do you have anything you want to say at this moment Hmm. well i always i really like that you said your otherness was your strength and i really I mean, it's, it can feel alienating and it can feel lonely to be othered in this. I mean, it's, it is still a straight white upper middle class, you know, landscape uh, that I don't know in media or whatever, even though, even though, um, so, or, or just around you, or, I mean, it can feel, it can feel scary to be a woman. It can feel scary to be a queer person. It can feel scary to be lower class or to be whatever, but um, if you think about that as your strength and you lean into it and you don't try to change it and you try to find other people like you and reach out to them and support each other, I think it can be a great a great strength in times of trouble like this. That is very beautifully put. Thanks. I feel like I'm rambling now. No, no, that was good. You're saying the right things. I don't know how to put thoughts together. Are you allowed to talk about your new book? I guess I'm allowed to. I feel like I probably shouldn't, though, um, because my ratio of talking about it to doing it has gotten severely skewed. Do you, uh, question, do you have an idea, like, I feel like anytime I'm working on a project like that, where I feel a little bit stressed out about finishing it, or I feel locked into it, or I don't know if that's how you feel, but I, I feel like I'm always looking, I'm like, I can't wait for this to be done. And then as soon as it's done, I'm rapidly thinking about the next project. It's oh, almost like yeah. giving birth where like your brain takes like erases how fucking awful it was to be in the trenches um, of it. Yeah. You know, I'm trying actually to savor being in the middle of, of this project because I know I'll feel bereft when it's done and I'll have to go through this whole phase of latching onto a new one. So I'm trying to savor it. And I, I don't, I am actually kind of happy. I'm like, my, my life has just been so disrupted over the past couple of years. I haven't been able to dig in with the kind of solitude and focus that I need to, to function. I need so much downtime uh, to have any kind of creative energy and I haven't had it. So I just keep making these little 
like sporadic stabs at this book and then I have to go off somewhere. So finally I'm, I'm getting the kind of time I need to string two thoughts together and I'm very happy about that and excited. I'm happy that you have made time to talk on the podcast amidst your uh, mental, mental space and solitude that you need for your book. Thank you, Nicole. And it's been really good to talk with you, even though I'm afraid I've been so incoherent uh, in the wake of this election. Do you? Uh, feels. Oh, what? Sorry. I'm just happy to be talking to someone who does the kind of work I do. That's really nice. Just, you know, making human connections is all we can do. I agree. Do you have last minute advice for young cartoonists? Um, or young queer people, your choice. I'm so bad at that advice question. Other people just have a bunch of a whole, you know, brilliant common sense tips to hand out. I don't know. Just draw. Just do your work. Uh, Just do it. Get out a belt and tie yourself to your chair if you find that you have any difficulty staying seated for long enough to draw something. Oh, my God. Wait. This question, you're welcome to plead the fifth. This is a question I ask everybody. What do you think it is like to date a cartoonist? The, the, the backstory of this question is this guy, this straight guy was going to be my roommate in Portland. He had just dated two women who were cartoonists who had broken his heart in rapid succession. We're walking around the house. He's like, Nicole, I can't do it anymore. And I was like, do what? And he's like, I can't date another cartoonist. And I was like, I don't know what, again, I was like, I don't know what that means. I was like, what horrors is he (laughs) referencing here? Well, I, you know, I, it's, I think it would be lonely and frustrating to date a cartoonist. And I am, I'm just trying to imagine what my partner how she would answer that and how my last partner would answer that and how the one before that would answer it. Yeah, I feel like, like um, what are things people have yelled at you as they're running out the door? As they're running out the door? Is it your oh, cat, as they're leaving your the relationship? Your will never love you back. Like whatever. Um, that's something somebody well, said to my friend Alec, just to be clear. That's a, that's a, no one's actually said that to me, but that has been the understanding, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, Calling that takes a, an inordinate amount of time and focus. Like most people, you know, have an eight hour a day job or a 10 hour a day job or even a 12 hour a day job. They don't spend their entire life drawing and writing and drawing uh, and writing about their life and asking their girlfriends to pose as their previous girlfriend for this scene that you have to draw about your breakup. (laughs) Uh, I've done that more than once. Um, I don't know. I feel very lucky anyone has been with me at all, but uh, I can imagine that it's kind of challenging. I mean, I know, I know that it's been a challenge. I, I can't even, I don't even know what it's, I can't even remember what it's like anymore, but I, but I did talk, I don't know if you know that, um, song formation by Beyonce, but my friend Gabby Schultz, who's a cartoonist said, if you give me, if you leave me alone, I'll take your ass to Red Lobster. And this Beyonce song, she says, if you fuck me good, I'll take your ass to Red Lobster. (laughs) If you leave me alone, I'll take your ass to Red Lobster. And I was like, yeah. If you give me mental yeah. space enough to do my work. If you give me mental space, you get whatever you want. Yeah. It's a, it's a road. But I think that's a good answer. I think overall, the cartoonists, I guess at some time I'll have to have a cartoonist partner roundtable. Because so far I ask every cartoonist and they're all like, oh, it sounds awful. It sounds like the worst thing. I mean... Cartoonists seem to keep getting in, into relationships, so yeah, you should have a roundtable with the partners there too. How do cartoonists get into relationships? Just because we all we all sit still for long enough, we just. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got into my last one by um, wanting to interview Holly about 
her life for my for my comics. Mm-hmm. I tried to get her to sign a waiver at some point, saying that anything that happened in our life, I could I could write about. Really? Yeah, Did she you... wouldn't do it, but she. I feel like she gave me her verbal agreement. And now you've recorded it. Now with this <laughs> on public record that you've recorded it. I think I ask pe- I'll ask people if they want a pseudonym. And then if I'm keeping like a strict diary, I will consult them and say like the next two weeks I'm keeping a comic diary. So, you know, if you want to steer, so they know they're being observed. If you want to steer clear of me, that's fine. Or like, don't do anything fucked up or shitty this week because I'm keeping huh. a diary and everything is fodder for this emotional arc. And then, like I told you, anything else that happens from the wider lens of our relationship, by now I like disguise and mask and I just it's I, I don't know I already feel like I've sold out everyone around me so I feel protective do well this I know we have to end but um do do the, do the people feel sold out or is it just your your guilt I think it's just my guilt it's okay. mostly my guilt uh you know I did tell you like my mom gave me a one-star Amazon review so I think that she <laughs> I can't remember. I think I told you that. I can't remember. But I discovered that she, so great. she gave me a one-star Amazon review. Um, didn't like the book. So I think she probably felt sold out. But I haven't. Yeah. I think I think that people in general feel uh, flattered that you have spent. They're like, look at I had such an impact that you spent hours rendering my likeness. Like, <laughs> that's good. That's what I, I mean, is that what you think? In terms of the people I've written about? Yeah. Um, like maybe not your family per se. Oh, I, I think it's, I, th- I think my family definitely does not feel, well, my, maybe my mother did feel some degree of being, I don't, I don't know about flattered, but I think she liked that she was my subject. But she didn't necessarily like how how I was writing about her. Mm-hmm. So it was always very split. And I think for everyone, it's split. There's like pleasure to seeing yourself, you know, portrayed in someone's work. And there's a horror. And both are real. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good note to end on, don't you think? The pleasure and the horror. We can call this episode the pleasure and the horror. Pleasure and the horror. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm very happy you came on the podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to have been on the podcast. I hope that we'll be able to feel pleasure again and not just horror. I think that we will. I think, I don't know, the night of the election, I was at Michelle T's house and we were like the minute that we like after maybe 630 p.m. And we started like being like, oh, maybe this election is not what we thought it was going to be. We were like, okay, well, maybe we'll just go deeper. Like, we'll just go into, like, a weirder a weirder subset of society. Just go, like, a little deeper into the underground. Maybe go live in Mexico. I was like, I can do caricatures on the beach. Michelle's going to give tarot readings on the beach. My sister said she could weave baskets out of seaweed. <laughs> I don't know. that all those, all those jokes about leaving the country, which I myself have made over the years, all seem sort of pointless now because... The whole world is in peril, you know? There's nowhere safe. Well, I, I could move to Finland and uh, be living in a nuclear winter with radiation sickness. It doesn't. It's not going to help to leave. Oh, God. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Do you remember I dated an astronomer? I can't remember. I think I told you that. But before I met them, they were like, oh, I was going to move to Mars. I was going to, like, apply to be in the lottery of people to choose. So when the election was happening, I texted them, and I was like, so... I was like, Mars? Yeah, it's come to that. There's, that's the only escape, is to get off the planet. Uh, but I, I but no, we have to stay here. We're going to work together to reclaim this planet. That's yeah. what we have to do. We're here to reclaim the planet for the trees, for the animals, for the ponyos, for the cats, for the lesbians. Yes. For the, for the women identified, for whoever, for the queer people, for whatever. Anyway, thank you for coming. What's your, what's your sign? What's your astrological sign? Virgo. That was like such, just like such a duh. <laughs> I know. Such an obvious, 
I was like, Allison seems like a Virgo, so she couldn't she couldn't be a Virgo. It's like two. <laughs> what are you? Sagittarius. Oh right, that's the name of the podcast. Yeah, but then I got have it. A lot of Capricorn, so it keeps me hardworking and grounded. You know. Okay, you look like Hermes with that that winged helmet. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.